Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics, the inquiry into foreign interference. The Commission will have access to all of the intelligence information and the officials in an unredacted way. The public safety minister is promising to share secret documents, but how much will the public actually get to see and hear? And will the inquiry succeed where the work of the independent rapporteur did not? Also. We have to get this right. This is, this is extremely challenging. Why push back medically assisted death for mental illness when some senators say there is a path forward? We'll speak to our weekly journalist panel. And pulling funding from UNRWA. What will it take to restore confidence in the aid agency that helps Palestinians in Gaza? We'll speak with Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The public inquiry examining allegations of foreign meddling in Canada's 2019 and 2021 federal elections heard from its first cabinet minister on Friday. The public safety minister telling the Hogue Commission that while it will have access to witnesses and unredacted versions of relevant documents, not everything will be made public. At issue, says Dominic Leblanc, is the fine line the government must walk between transparency and protecting classified information. We do absolutely accept the need to maximize a public understanding of these issues. That is one of the best ways to detect and disrupt attempts to interfere in electoral processes. But as, as you noted in the question, there is also an obligation by law uh, imposed by statute uh, on the national security agencies to protect uh, certain classified documents, certain classified information, um, because A, they have an important responsibility to protect Canadians and democratic institutions, and to do that, they need to have access uh, to intelligence products uh, that come often from allies. Well, to talk about the foreign interference inquiry and the other stories of this week, we're now joined by our journalist panel. Tana McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Bellevance, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. And Robert Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for The Globe and Mail. Thank you to the three of you for being here. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us. us. So, Oh, nice seeing you too. Let's let's begin here with the Hoke Commission because, as we know, eventually it's going to be looking into the 2019-2021 election. The the allegations of foreign meddling from countries allegedly like China, India, as well as Russia. But this first week was really about sorting out what we're going to hear, a bit of the parameters of what will will take place when it really gets into the nitty and gritty of all all of this. Given what we did here, how transparent do you think this commission's actually going to be for the Canadian public? I think that's. A work in progress. That's what remains to be seen. It's the big question, isn't it? I mean, the whole point of the commission is to shed some light on a problem and to uh, reveal to the Canadian public what 
interference took place in the last couple of elections and what how, the scope of the problem. Um, and given the signals we're getting about how much secrecy still has to shroud all those documents, you know, it's an open question. I think the proof will be when we see what can come forward in unredacted form. Already, the few documents that have been tabled there have, I think, set up some red flags for Canadians, but lots of secrecy still sh surrounds it. You're nodding. Yeah, yeah, still, I think this was a necessary educational exercise this week to explain to Canadians what may happen be, uh, so that we don't, uh, they, they don't, uh, are not shocked by what will result from this commission. And it's uh, because it's true that about 80% of the documents that have been, you know, will be seen by the commission will be uh, highly secret. So it's, it's the uh, information obtained by CSIS uh, through its allies in the Five Eyes countries that, you know, need to be protected so that our spies can continue to do their work. But uh, so I think it was um, laying the groundwork for explaining to Canadians what they, may, they might be deceived by the number of documents that will be eventually released because of the sensitive nature of those documents. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob? Well, it wasn't very encouraging to, uh, this week because you heard uh, officials complaining that it took 200 hours to uh, go through these 13 documents that, in which they redacted most of them. Uh, and basically saying, oh, you don't don't keep asking us to do this because we aren't going to be able to do it. Uh, fortunately, the uh, public safety minister um, said uh, today that you know the government will uh, honor whatever the the commissioner wants in terms of uh, trying to get redacted documents out to the public. But I think the most likely thing you're going to get is summaries of yeah. what, uh, what the testimony is and and that itself is going to have to be worked out with the government officials even the summaries so I'm, I'm very concerned that uh, we may not uh, get at the heart of uh, of a lot of the uh, foreign interference um, you know the participants who have a granted standing we had very powerful arguments at the end of the commission's hearings uh, on Friday uh, making the case that uh, you're, this is a public inquiry. The, the best way to deal with foreign interference is sunlight and transparency, mm -hmm. and you must get as much information out to the public as possible and be very, very careful, Commissioner Hogue, that you aren't getting snowed by the politicians who don't, or, or uh, security officials who, are t who don't want to, uh, are covering up how they mishandled things. For example, uh, the case of why wasn't Michael Chung, the Conservative MP, notified in 2021 election campaign that he was being targeted by China? Was, wasn't Aaron O'Toole, then the official opposition leader, mm -hmm. why wasn't he told, why wasn't NDP MP uh, Jenny Kwan uh, not told about that? So this is really, really important. And, and, and also in the case of Han Dong, uh, I think his lawyer made a good uh, argument today as well that you know, uh, David Johnson said the accusations that Global News had made him, uh, against him were, were, were false, and he wants to make sure that his reputation can be cleared up in this inquiry, and, and that seems to be a, a fair point as well. I yeah, just, right. I just yeah. want to say, though, I think it's incumbent on all of us watching to be clear that it's, it's hard at this point to say we're not going to get at the heart of this issue, because while a lot of the documents may not be made public, one thing that we all know from this week's testimony is that the commission itself, mm -hmm. the judge and all her counsel, all her lawyers, are going to have access to the completely unredacted yeah. version of yeah. all of those documents. It, the question of transparency goes to, uh, I think, a, a bit of restoring 
public confidence in the system. But it doesn't necessarily go to the question of whether this judge and her team can get to the heart of the issue. What might go to that is whether or not they get evidence brought forward from diaspora groups, Canadians who've been the target and victims of foreign interference, who are right now concerned that they may not have enough protection to come forward publicly uh, well, and speak to that issue. Well, to that, and you know, there, there are already early problems, right? In, in, you, the papers, you were noting it, I was reading your article earlier this week, Bob, that, the, for example, the Uyghur group has pulled out of this right. commission. The Conservative Party has their, their their questions, which leads me to wonder whether or not this inquiry will satisfy Canadians in a way that David Johnston, as the special rapporteur, did not. I mean, that's, that's the point, yeah. isn't it? I, yeah. I mean, it depends, I think, on to what extent the, the judge herself feels she's been able to get to the part of it. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what they were saying today, the, the, inter, the people at Grandstanding, that, that uh, Mr. Johnson um, lacked credibility. The public didn't trust the results of that. Um, and, and, uh, and that's why this public inquirer is really important, that she uh, can have the trust of the public that, that she's going to release as much information as she can, or certainly to assure the public uh, I mean, look, she's a judge. She's nonpartisan. I mean, we have to have faith that she's going to get to the bottom of this. One mm -hmm. of the other obstacles is the tight deadline under which yeah. the, that commission yeah. is working. I mean, <clears throat> produce a report, a full report on what did possibly China, India, and Russia, uh, a report that should be tabled uh, on May the 3rd is a very, very tight deadline. And that's the final the report, report though, that's right? the interim report, but the final yeah. report at the end of December, that's another tight deadline. And I think the, the commission and also I think the government is working with the option uh, the, uh, in the optics that there is a federal election that will mm. probably take place in 2025. And if there needs to be new measures adopted by the government to protect our democracy against foreign influence, it needs to be in place before the next federal election. Yeah, of course. So watching that one closely. Uh, but listen, I also want to move into some other topics uh, covered this past week, beginning with medically assisted death for, for mental illness, because we know that uh, the government started the week saying they're going to push it back. They ended up pushing it back uh, to 2027. Uh, many years from now, although the dissenting opinion from a group of senators said, you know, the federal government could have just changed the criminal code, move, move the ball a little bit further down the field while provinces and other jurisdictions uh, caught up. Do you think that's a move that should have been pursued? Do you think that could have been pursued in this current environment? Look, I think the one thing that argues for the government's at least intent to delay it somewhat is the fact that the provinces and some of the, um, all of the provinces and some of the um, associations like the Canadian Mental Health Association, the Center for Addictions and Mental Health, that they backed a delay and said the system wasn't ready. What argued against the government's move on this is that the regulators across this country of the health profession say they are ready. Mm. And, you know, the senator's point was that this committee wasn't looking at the whole medical system, whether it's ready, it was looking at whether the federal government had done its work on setting national guidelines in several areas, and it had. So they've put it, though, down the road three years, which is an astonishing amount of time for the right to at least apply for medically assisted death for those who solely suffer from a, a mental illness, which is a right that courts in this country have said they have, that have interpreted the law and the rights under the Charter to mean that those people do have at least the right to apply and be assessed for, for that. And right now the government's put that off the table, which means like three years, that's a long time. And it gives time to people who are demanding that kind of access, time to go to the courts and seek a judgment that would yeah. force again the government to act. So 
uh, that could be problematic because three years is enough time to contest this kind of uh, uh, decision by the federal government. But obviously, the liberal government wanted to push, or pelleté, as we say in French, punch, <laughs> punch yes, <laughs> after the next federal election, any controversial issues that may deal with ethical issues. And that's one of them, one of those issues. Mm -hmm. So, a political move you're seeing yeah. that. Uh, Bob, what's your I reaction to it? I think it's a it? total political move on their behalf. Uh, they don't want to fight an election campaign with, because uh, it's it's a hard issue to understand for a lot of yeah, people, and I, I they don't want Pierre Pauly a vote. They're saying, you know, oh, they're gonna uh, if if you you have a mental problems, uh, you can go and get uh, somebody. Your family members can you know uh, have you uh, medically assisted to die. I mean that that is like that's a and don't don't put it past them to do it. He would do it. <laughs> so uh, and I think so from their point of view, they, it's a smart move. Let's just push this thing down the road because we just don't need to fight a political issue over it like that. It's a very sensitive subject to begin with. I think it does ensure, though, that it is going to be the subject of political questions in a campaign yeah. where parties stand on it. So in actual, in, in actual fact, it doesn't delay the political conversation. Um, the political conversation has been had at many levels in Parliament over the past several yeah. years. And, and you could also argue that basically lawmakers and politicians in Parliament are in the best position to make a social call like this than a judge on a court. So, And it's funny because, uh, well, funny, paradoxical, paradoxal, because the former justice minister, David Lemaitre, mm -hmm. said before leaving that he, he thinks that yeah. we should go ahead with that. And so he left politics this week, but with some kind of... Uh, a lot of comments that I think are stirring some some uh, some reactions uh, within the liberal ranks, but also or in within the population as a whole. Yeah, what's interesting is that, of course, it had already been delayed. It's now going to get this other delay. And I was speaking to to Anne McGrath yesterday, the NDP now principal secretary to Jagmeet Singh, and she she said, well, her hope is whether she she actually agrees that perhaps it's good to take some time to think about it, but she hopes that it's actually dealt with not in the last month of 2027 mm -hmm. to force another pushback X mm -hmm. number of years. Uh, I'm sad to say that is the time that we have for this week, uh, but really glad to see the three of you again. Looking forward to getting into the groove of things. Uh, Tonda, Joe, Denis, uh, Bob, thank, thank you. you for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Michael. You it is very hard to imagine the people of Gaza surviving without UNRWA. Those were the words of the UN agency spokeswoman today, commenting on a recent move by Western countries, including Canada, to suspend funding after Israel accused 13 UNRWA workers of taking part in the deadly October 7 attacks. The UN did fire a number of those workers. It is now investigating. And as for Canada, it has made the decision to give aid money to other players in the region. I also want to add that the United Nations immediately acted following the very serious allegations against UNRWA staff members. I was personally horrified by those accusations. And yesterday, I met with donors to listen to their concerns and to outline the steps we are taking to address them. I underscored the importance of keeping UNRWA's vital work going to meet the dire needs of civilians in Gaza and to ensure its continuity of services to Palestine refugees in the occupied West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. UNRWA is the backbone of all humanitarian response in Gaza.
We're very much encouraged by the United Nations uh, oversight body launching this investigation. We're confident that they will conduct a thorough and transparent investigation. We are in touch with them. We're keeping close, a close eye on this investigation and, and we await the results of this investigation very, very keenly. Because we, we value what UNRWA has done in the past in terms of providing much needed humanitarian aid to Palestinians. Well, joining us now is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Ambassador Ray, thank you for making the time. Thank you, Michael. Good to be with you again. So Canada has suspended its financial support for UNRWA. I'm wondering, what would you have to see, what would Canada have to see before that funding was restored? Well, that's a decision that won't be made by me. It'll be made by the government. But um, I think what we're looking for now is um, a, a response within four weeks from the group that's been asked by the Secretary General to do an independent investigation of what happened. We need to understand that the allegations against uh, these individuals, and there may be others, um, uh, are very, very serious. I mean, it's it's uh, not something that one would expect to happen, to have uh, people involved in a terrorist attack who are working for the United Nations. That's uh, that's just goes well beyond the realm of what's uh, what's acceptable. Um, I think there's general agreement about that. Secretary General did not disagree with that. He he, he insists that they take an action against the individuals who've been named. Uh, but we want to find out more broadly what's what's happening. How could that have happened? Um, and and as I said, it, for us, it's within a, a relatively quick time, and we want that to be done within four weeks. And we've we've increased our humanitarian assistance too all the other agencies that are working in the in the area um, and um, that we believe have the ability to get um, get food and, and get assistance into where it needs to needs to go um, and uh, we will together with a number of other countries there are 14 other countries have also suspended their assistance um, uh, we will we will make a decision after we get the report as to as to what the next steps have to be and I I think that's a logical approach. I think it's uh, sensible to wait for the facts. Um, we did not take this, we took this decision quickly. We did not take it lightly. Um, but uh, I think it's it was important to indicate clearly to the UN that it's not just business as usual when we when we get word of these these kinds of allegations. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wonder if there could ever be confidence in the agency again. And I ask that in light of the Wall Street Journal report that says of the 12,000 Gazan employees in UNRWA, about 10%, and again, this is from the Wall Street Journal, they, they say have ties with either Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Can there ever be a, a way of restoring confidence in the agency? Well, I, I, I don't, I mean, with great respect to any newspaper, I don't know what evidence they have to, to back that up. Um, I think we all have to understand that UNRWA, together with every other agency that hires um, Palestinians and uh, people working in the community, um, is 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 is, is going to have a challenge in terms of vetting people and, and making sure what, that people don't um, don't let their political views interfere with the integrity of their work. Um, and and I and I, you know, if you said UNRWA has this many people. Um, you could well argue that any agency that's working in that circumstance is going to have have to deal with that problem. So it's all very well to come up with uh, with bold, you know, numbers and then 
say this is, means that no, nobody can ever have faith in UNRWA again. Um, UNRWA is working under very difficult circumstances, and I think we have to take a, a practical, fact-based approach to how we go forward. We've also, frankly, got to deal with, we're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. It's not as if you say, well, we've got the time and we've got lots of, you know, we can take choices, we've got lots of other things we can do. You say there really isn't, you know, we've got to get food to people. The evidence that's come out of the entire UN system about malnourishment, about the risk to children, the risk to childhood development, everything else. We, we can't be uh, cavalier with people's lives, and we, and we certainly can't, can't be unaware of what's at stake here. You've got to make sure that the humanitarian assistance continues. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, as you know, UN officials did make an appeal uh, saying that really there is no other agency as capable as UNRWA in delivering the, the aid that is needed by the Palestinian people. Uh, Canada, as you noted, is sending aid through different means now, but how do you reconcile the assessment that we heard from UN officials with the strategy Canada is now undertaking? Well, to be very blunt with everybody, the World Food Program is a UN agency. Uh, the World Food Program has trucks, to our knowledge. We know that. We know they're delivering food assistance. So, I mean, I, I'm not going not to disagree with anybody, but the fact is we are giving assistance to organizations that we know can get assistance to people who need it. That's what we're doing. We're, we're doing that. Uh, we're not. We're not simply, um, you know, turning away from the situation. We're actually stepping up how much we're contributing, and it, it, no question that UNRWA is an, is a very important part of the UN system in delivering help. But there are other agencies that are also involved that are directly engaging with uh, with Palestinians, and that's the groups that we're helping. Uh, as you noted, Canada is not the only country to have suspended funding to UNRWA. Uh, the U.S., France, Germany, uh, the U.K., Japan, just among others. I'm wondering if there have been any discussions with uh, Canada's allies as to some kind of joint workaround if this group of countries, Canada included, is not satisfied with the conclusion of the report due in four weeks' time. Well, I mean, the, the first thing I can assure you is, yes, we're working very closely with these countries. We had a meeting on Tuesday before the meeting with the Secretary General. Uh, there's another meeting taking place today. Uh, we are working very closely with countries about where we are, what we need to do, and, and with what all of our information coming together really, really provides. Um, we're, we're encouraging the United Nations to do everything it can to um, carry out a full investigation and to, to set out what, what they feel is a is a good path forward that we can all have confidence in, uh, but we're not waiting for the UN to do that. We're continuing to work closely with everybody as this investigation proceeds because it's something this these are decisions that have to be made in real time. Uh, we we can't we don't have the luxury of uh, of, of of waiting. Um, we need to be able to have a good basis to go forward and then to figure out what steps we need to take uh, together to uh, have an impact. Uh, I, I realize you have talked about it uh, perhaps more indirectly, but I, I, I do want to ask a direct question here. What do you say to people who are concerned or upset by this move, thinking that Canada is turning its back on the need in Gaza right now and the need amongst Palestinian people? 
Well, whenever you make a decision, I mean, this comes from my own political experience, which you may, you may recall from another, another movie. I mean, you're going to make people, some people are going to be very annoyed on, on all sides. And that just, it just happens. And that's been true in this situation as well. We have criticism from people who don't think we should give any money ever or have given any money ever to UNRWA, which I think is, is, is not sensible. I think we needed to give money to UNRWA uh, to make sure they were responding to, to the needs that were there. And then you have people who say, well, how can you, how can you possibly do what you're doing when the humanitarian crisis is there? And to whom we, we say, we're actually giving an additional $40 million to that assistance. And the money that was spent, <laughs> given to UNRWA uh, before is, is, has not all been used up. So we're, we're, we're not abandoning anybody. We are continuing to work hard at making sure that um, the assistance gets to the people who, who need it. But we also need to get an investigation to understand what is happening with, with UNRWA and how could this have happened on October 7th. We mustn't lose sight of that they're victims to October 7th as well. And the idea that the, the UN would have, would have even in, 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 in a very indirect way have been involved in that is, is not acceptable. And the Secretary General has said that to us. He agrees with that. So I think, I think actually uh, we, we are doing what we can to make sure we're getting the assistance in. And now if we can get a ceasefire, which we're still working for and arguing for and pushing for, uh, we can, we can, I think, begin to get more assistance through the door, which is what's required to, uh, to deal with the imminent crisis in, uh, in Gaza. Ambassador Bob Ray, I always appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Time now for a look at what happened in politics this week. The public inquiry on foreign interference has wrapped up its first week of testimony. It largely focused on administrative issues like transparency while protecting security. Today, the public safety minister, Dominic LeBlanc, took the stand. I was struck when I became minister of public safety the extent to which we're net importers of intelligence information. The federal government is providing $362 million to help shelter asylum seekers. On Thursday, Immigration Minister Mark Miller said Quebec would be getting $100 million. And on Friday, the Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland announced Toronto would be getting $162 million. And it means, critically, that more newcomers will have a safe and stable place to call home while they get settled in Canada. The Prime Minister is pushing back against Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and her new gender identity policies. If Premier Smith wants to fight someone, uh, stand with us and fight for Canadians on lower grocery prices, on uh, affordable fuel, on more housing, on fighting climate change. Fight with us to defend the rights of vulnerable Canadians. Don't fight against vulnerable LGBT youth. The changes include banning puberty blockers for people under 15 and prohibiting top or bottom surgery for people under 17. Children under 15 would need their parents' permission to use a different name or pronoun at school, and transgender women would not be allowed to compete in women's sports. Smith says she expects to table legislation making the changes official in the fall. 
And finally, the federal government tabled legislation to delay an expansion to Canada's medical assistance in dying laws. The expansion would allow people to access MAID where mental health is the sole underlying condition. While the deadline had been moved to March 17th of this year, the legislation now looks to come into effect sometime in 2027. Health Minister Mark Holland has said the delay is needed to ensure provinces and territories are ready for the changes. And that is Primetime Politics. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again next time.